1: interview them and ask them good questions and I get information out of them that maybe they didn't uh, give to a, you know, a run of the mill article that uh, they were asked to be in. So that's my goal here. I have uh, Paul Turner. He's a Rachel Carson professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Yale and uh, his group, the Turner group, they examine how viruses uh, evolutionarily adapt to overcome new challenges. So I like that because uh, a lot of people seem to to say that viruses are not alive and don't adapt they're subject to randomness, which I don't uh, believe, but it looks like Paul's group may. So Paul, welcome.
2: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate the invitation to join you today.
1: Yeah. And I may have, you know, spoken for you. But uh, that's what I want to ask you first. Do you, do you believe that viruses are alive? Are they contingently alive when in a cell? Or what are your thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I think that this is a, a great age-old question to revisit, for which I'm not so sure there's ever going to be a correcting. So I guess it's all about your definitions of life. And if it's metabolism, viruses are out. But if it's in terms of a biological system obeying evolution by natural selection... They're clearly in. Um, I, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a great question to ask. Sometimes I answer people by, well, does it really matter, given the importance of virus evolution? And we certainly know the challenges that we face now in the current day that we'll face in the future, what we've seen in the past. This is because viruses change on us uh, evolutionarily. So I happen to put them in the category of life. Uh, that's OK if people disagree with me. But I think the real important thing is that they change over time, they do adapt to become better uh, fit in their environments, including in hosts. And we're certainly grappling with that challenge right now.
1: Yeah. When you consider a seed or a spore, you know, I guess you could probably say the same thing, but yet no one would
0: argue that a plant's not
1: alive. So I I wonder if that's a good analogy.
2: Yeah. That's a very good point. Uh, We are impressed in microbiology with the ability of some bacteria to form spores and just sit in a desert or you know an arid environment for decades, if not hundreds of years. So in that interim time, is that organism alive? And let me take you to a quick macro organism example. There's certainly amphibians that will freeze solid. Uh, there are insects that will freeze solid over winters. And when they're in that state of suspended animation, do we call them alive or not? I think there's a lot of... Uh, There's a lot of room within that question for different biological systems. And and, uh, it's a challenging one, really. Okay.
1: And you were talking about virus uh, evolution. Where do they go? Where are they evolving towards? Are they evolving towards greater virulence or endogenization in a host or just a a long-term commensal relationship where they hang out inside a host and don't cause them harm?
2: Yeah, I think all of those are potential ways for selection to mold viruses and have them change over time. And uh, this is the tricky thing, when we're even understanding the basics of virology and how viruses evolve, what are the selective, um, not sure I'd use the word endpoint, uh, I'm not a big believer of equilibria ever being reached, but the, the point is a great one that from the standpoint of how the environment, how the ecology matters, sure, some virus could evolve to be more dangerous over time, it could evolve to be less dangerous over time. There's many factors that influence that. Uh, the opportunity to jump into a new host or not, the opportunity to jump into new uninfected individuals of the same host is also a big environmental factor for whether a virus is going to keep that current host as something very precious and be a little more kind to it in the eyes of selection, be more avirulent, versus if there's an ample opportunity to jump to a new uninfected host individual, then this can select for increased virulence or at least sustained high levels of virulence over time. And then, uh, you know, quickly, one thing that you said really jazzes me, and I think that there's a lot of room for it in virology research, is if a virus gets locked into the genome of a host, I think the overall sentiment is that that's an accident. That something has occurred there where the virus has given up its autonomy, it's within a host, and it gets locked in. And I'm just not so sure. I think that that's an open opportunity for research, is that actually a potential goal of selection is to throw all your chips in and let the host dictate your fate. And it could be something that is seen uh, in the eyes of selection on virus systems that they might occasionally go to that state
1: yeah I've, I've learned from different people that uh, bacteria can use viruses as tools and viruses certainly seem to use their hosts as tools you know the, the cellular machinery so it's it's kind of odd you know i've learned that, that bacteria will let's say clip parts of a virus and use it for you know a defense immunity um, they use i guess crispr to do that and, or other mechanisms and bacteria have adapted viral genes to make their own kind of spike proteins and the I mean, even extracellular vesicles in in our cells, for instance, they seem very virus-like. You know, they carry RNA, they, they enter into cells, they change their gene expression. Yeah, it's weird. They they seem like a lot of different things at once.
2: It is weird. So one can think of it in terms of viruses on this planet are these kind of uh, possible toolkits for other cellular, well, for cellular organisms to interact with these and grab a tool. And uh, it's it's a little difficult to know how much of that is on the side of viruses evolving towards a more mutualistic or a benign interaction with their hosts. And then they become maybe suckers, where the host is now, it's no longer threatened. So it's like, oh, well, here's something neat that that virus brings to the genetic or the gene table. I'm going to incorporate That gene. And, you know, of course, I'm phrasing all this with an anthropomorphic feel to it just so people can understand what I'm talking about. But there is not this kind of thinking process to it. It's an opportunity. So evolution is always looking to opportunities for what is on hand to take some system to some different level. And I think it's really intriguing to consider the, as you said, great examples and bacteria alone. If you just consider them, there's all sorts of ways that. Bacteria have taken genes and functions from viruses, incorporated them into the bacteria, and it opened up a new opportunity for that bacterium to do something else. Maybe it's going to be a better competitor against other bacteria. Maybe it's going to be using something at its disposal to now uh, utilize a macroorganism host like a human as a host of that bacterium. And the same thing goes for virus genes that, you know, our, our genomes are loaded up with what are recognizably virus genes. And these are the hallmarks of infection in the long ago past. So these ghosts of infection past have done us many good things. They provided many beneficial genes ultimately that became uh, part of the human uh, genome. And we're probably you know not even close to figuring out what some of those apparently free rider genes are doing in our genomes. And maybe they have more let's just say nefarious purposes, you know is there any link to those genes being there for predisposition to some cancers or other uh, maladies that humans are are struggling to to control from a disease side so my main point there is the the real function of these genes you know if they're not uh, if they're sitting there and they seem to be more or less on their way out through drift you know just sort of disappearing over time that's not so. That's not such an easy thing to figure out.
1: So what are you studying in viruses in particular? What kind of uh, hypotheses you have going?
2: Sure. So I'd say um, on a very high level, we seek to do three main things. One is trying to just figure out how evolution works from a very basic standpoint using the most rapidly evolving systems at our disposal, and that would be viruses. So plenty of the work in my lab. Just use vi- they, we use viruses as a tool because they can evolve and adapt quickly to ask as general of a question that we can in evolution. The second goal would be more to the side of how do viruses that are pathogens, what are the rules by which the ecology that they face, the evolution that they undergo... Really has us able to better understand infectious disease. You know, how is it that, virulence, as you said earlier in, 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 this, in this discussion, how does virulence evolve over time? But now I'm going to take a more pointed look at a mosquito borne virus like dengue virus, and I'm actually going to take that into the laboratory and construct experiments around it, maybe allow it to be growing in mosquitoes that we can culture in the laboratory, but look at certain aspects of how it evolves to get better insight for the much more complex stuff that happens in the outside world. And then the last thing that we've been involved in, especially in the last couple of years to a great extent, is in the realm of virotherapy. How do you take a virus and tame it, if you will, and use it for applied purposes that solve problems that humans can't otherwise solve. And uh, definitely in that realm, we've done a a lot of work and stand to do a lot more in the phage therapy realm. How do you take viruses that are specific to bacteria, the bacteria phages or abbreviated as phages, and how do you kind of revitalize trust in something that was shown even before the accidental discovery of antibiotics is that you could use phages to tackle bacterial infections. And that's just becoming more and more important because our reliance on antibiotics is failing. We just don't have the assurance that antibiotics can do the job anymore since bacteria have evolved antibiotic resistance. And we're going back to this old idea, trying to update it, of how do I use phages instead in terms of uh, healing these infections in humans?
1: Well, why have phages not not become the predominant way to to help people instead of antibiotics? Why? What, What do you think?
2: I think it's a very interesting history. So if you consider at the time in the early 1900s when people first discovered phages and immediately did some animal experiments and even experiments on humans to push uh, bacterial disease out of those infected organisms, the tools in microbiology were very crude. You know, we didn't have any of the molecular biology tools then. And it's a messy biology system. So when we stumbled upon the discovery of, oh, wait a minute, there's some chemicals that are naturally produced, and ultimately we ended up synthesizing different versions of them. But these are more static entities. They're not going to change on you like a bacteriophage will. So I think it's the combination of the technology came on board when the tools associated with it were pretty crude. And then we got enamored with, oh, let's use chemical antibiotics and they seem to be working well, so why would we use any other technology, even if it predated it? Because we think we've got something better. And the, the last thing I'll say is uh, I have to give props to the very many scientists in the countries that never lost interest in phage therapy. They continued to develop it. Um, it was happening in the USSR. It later happened in Russia and former... Um, Soviet nations, like especially the country of Georgia, it happened in Poland and all this is, stuff is still going on now. That's my point. So those researchers never let go of the idea. They published a ton of interesting work. And now that individuals like me are stepping back into this realm, we have a lot that we know from the literature and yet there's still a huge room for action and the improvement I would think of that technology. So it does work in a little more trustworthy fashion.
1: But well, what are some of the, uh, the countervailing forces that make phage therapy not work—you know—is it very difficult to control? Does it have unintended uh, side effects?
2: I'd say the the unintended side effects are pretty minimal to non-existence almost. So here is where I have to carefully say yes: there are some bacteriophages that, if they interact with bacteria, they're actually bringing virulence genes to the table. But they have very different kind of lifestyles than the ones that are typically used in phage therapy. The ones in phage therapy are called lytic phages where you find a match between this phage and the host bacteria and the phage is acting like a predator, really. It interacts with the cell, it gets in, takes over the cell machinery, makes copies of itself and kills the cell in the process. So the specificity of that is pretty strong. You don't find phages very easily capable of jumping over to some different bacterial species. It can happen. It seems to be much less frequent than you'd find in a lot of animal viruses, such as uh, the coronaviruses that we're dealing with now. So a long-winded, answering your question, is that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and other uh, you know, similar administrative bodies in other countries, I think that there's kind of a comfort level with phages, especially if they're naturally occurring or if you engineer ones that are well-characterized, that they're not going to have a lot of side effects. Maybe they'll interact with the human microbiome in some surprising ways, but we should be able to get a handle on that through mouse experiments, et cetera, depending on what the target is within the human body where you want to deploy phages. And I'd say at this point, the biggest barrier is how do you commercially develop something that's really difficult to wrap intellectual property around it. You can't take a naturally occurring phage like we use in our research and wrap a patent around it that's not allowed. And then if you engineer it, you could get more IP around it, but then you start to get a few more hurdles that you have to jump over because it's a genetically modified entity. So it's it's a little bit of a gray area, which is the easier way to go. I think... The US FDA is interested in this technology and they've been supportive of our personalized medicine approach using phages and emergency treatment of people and same for others who've tried it. But uh, I I think at this point, it's how much money is there really to be gained from it? And would big pharmaceutical companies feel like it's a very good investment? Would venture capitalists think it's a very good investment? I think it is. And we are seeing some of that. But uh, the last thing I'll say, sorry for the long-winded answer, is that really clinical trials are the gold standard in the USA, for example. We want to see in clinical trials general usefulness, safety, and efficacy of phages in some target bacterial system to get enough data that we trust that it would make this path to commercialization a viable one.
1: What's um... What do you think is the long-term interaction of a, a given phage and its, you know, its bacteria? Let's say in our microbiome, like, are, are they both evolving over time? I mean, but yet they're like, how can we have a certain bacteria in our in our guts? I don't know for years. Yeah, great and question. It, isn't it evolving? Isn't the phage evolving? Like, you know, what what's the interaction?
2: That's a great question. So we know already that you hear all the time about microbiome in humans, and it's usually spoken to in terms of the bacterial species that we carry around with us we also carry around viromes so they the problem is they're not very well studied yet so if we stick to just bacteria that are in our microbiome yes we have phages that are characteristically there all the time and your question seemed to be about well wait a minute if there's this predator that we're carrying around and it's prey item are the bacteria in our microbiome how come they're both present. And the reason probably is similar to what you see in very different environments like the ocean, where there are highly prevalent bacteria, the cyanobacteria, especially some species of them that are uh, able to photosynthesize. But there are a ton of phages that are specific to these bacteria that are easily found in the ocean. And the overarching idea is that you've got genotypes of the bacteria that are targeted by a very prevalent genotype of the phage, and those are um, sort of killed most often, and this is gonna select for a change in the bacteria to evolve to be a different genotype that escapes the phage attack. And then, okay, then this puts the onus on the phage population to chase the bacteria by undergoing genotypic change, and you get co-evolutionary cycling going on. So my point is within the human body, within almost any system where you see a long-standing influence of both the bacteria and the phage specific to them, the the key assumption that we have to prove is that there is some sort of cycling happening. So the species are always there, but the gene players in those species change over time.
1: Does anyone try to do a longitudinal look at the genes of a given phage and and bacteria pair? And are are there adaptations cycling? Or are they endlessly going on to new variations? You know, and and what periodicity is there? Yeah.
2: So uh, there's been a lot of terrific, uh, elegant experiments in the laboratory by research groups to examine the cycling at the genetic level. And there's been kind of two ways that it works. If there's sort of match for match of those different genotypes over time, then imagine, you know, you've got the cycling occurring, but if you took that phage and plunged it to grow on the long-ago ancestor bacterium of its current host, maybe it wouldn't be able to. In other words, they sort of run a, a race with one another, and sometimes called a red queen dynamic. But that, if you look you know, long ago, they have now failed to be able to keep up on that treadmill with genotypes of the host that they infected in the past. Or the answer is the opposite, that you could have phages, kind of a co-evolving to be better killing their current host, and they keep the old ability to grow on the past host. So that's a little granular to answer your question that way. My point is there's been great data in the laboratory for this. There's been kind of a little higher level types of experiments in ocean environments, and this is often involving what's called metagenomics, right? You've got a big survey of the genetic material in some system, and you're kind of uh, you know, at the level of what kind of genetic variation is there over time, and is that itself cycling, which is wonderful data to amass, but it's much harder to figure out the details underlying those data of uh, genotypic interactions. It's just it's, nothing comes for free. It's easier to get the metagenomic data, but it's harder to figure out, in some sense, what it all means at a level below what you're measuring. I'm not sure if that, if, if that helped yeah. in answer your question, but that's kind of a, as
1: far as I know, that's the current state of affairs. Well, I guess, you know, at least human guts from the data I've seen, they're pretty stable unless you get sick or, you know, something happens. I mean, they trend over time, but they may be over years, but they're, they're seem to be remarkably stable and resilient. So yeah, I,
2: I agree. In general, it's remarkably resilient, the species composition of communities in the human gut. And yet there can be some very interesting geographic differences probably due to local diet. You know, what kind of food are individuals in a population when you're surveying them for their microbiome? How much is their diet differing from location to location? And can you explain it's more like relative abundance of species within the microbiome in one location where humans are living versus another one? It's very compelling Uh, and then there's all sorts of other things that keep it, uh, an exciting area of research because some individuals could be dealing with a chronic long-term infection somewhere in their body, and it could have an influence on their microbiome composition. So this is what makes it very hard across humans. You tend to see similarities, but we, you can go all the way down to individuals in a household and see differences based on their age, maybe their gender, and you know, imagine if uh, somebody within that household is a strict vegetarian, and somebody's more of an omnivore. So you've got a lot of kind of variation at the level of individual humans for their microbiomes. That I think we have a lot of uh, mysteries to work out.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes of uh, I think it's Andrew Zimmern that show bizarre foods and. He went all over the world and ate different food, and like yes. his microbiome at one point must have been like the most diverse ever.
2: <laughs> yeah, I agree. And uh, I mean, just right there, there's an interesting question. So, if you have somebody jump from diet to diet, is it going to influence the composition of their microbiome, or is their microbiome going to be influenced by that and stay constant at the species level, but the underlying genotypes? within those species are changing because the person is, is having a different diet. That's one of those chicken and egg questions. It's a little bit hard to figure out what should be driving what.
1: So what are some of the, I don't know, the craziest things you've seen viruses do?
2: <laughs> Plenty of stuff. I always tell people that uh, some of the systems we work on are only literally a handful of genes in terms of genome size, and yet they have this crazy complexity to them. Some of the stuff that I'm intrigued by that I don't work on are these giant genome-sized viruses. And uh, more and more that these are studied. It blurs the line between what genes do you expect to find in a cellular organism versus in one that you know has no metabolism. So it's not one of the newer results, but I I always love to tell audiences about, again, these uh, viruses in the ocean, the bacteriophages, they're called cyanophages. And the fact that they have photosynthesis genes, when that was first discovered, it seemed very odd. If they have no metabolism, why do they have these genes for a very key function? And it starts to be explainable by, if you've got a phage or any virus inside of a cell and it's using the metabolic machinery, the cell has to keep churning. So if you are a a virus that's infecting this photosynthetic microbe, It needs to bring to the table the ability for sunlight to still be captured as a resource and for photosynthesis photosynthesis itself to push forward as part of the metabolism during the time that the virus is growing in the cell. And of course, as it exits, then the cell dies and game over for the cell. But it's to the virus's advantage to have those metabolic genes within its genome. So my point in bringing that one up is that I, I think that that's just tip of the iceberg stuff. That the more we look at viruses in natural systems where these types of genes would be important, we're probably going to find them. The more that we look at so-called giant-sized viruses, the more uh, we're going to see this genetic complexity in virus genomes and find cool stuff that we believed shouldn't be there, and
1: yet it's there. Do you, um do bacteria seem to use viruses to uh, I don't know transmit information or do they just use their own plasmids i mean is there is there any yeah. reversal of uh, i mean again b- bacteria do seem to use viral genes for their own purpose but do they use them as communication somehow
2: oh they, yeah like so there like- there seem to be data for that that uh they're again it's part of this interacting partners this intimacy of bacteria and the bacteriophages some of it seems to be exploitative where phage interacting with the bacterium and the ordinary course of events is for that bacterial cell to die once the phage has reproduced inside of it. And yet it doesn't happen occasionally. The virus genome itself can become incorporated into the genome of those bacteria, inherited by daughter cells. Uh, and then downstream of this, I, I guess my main point is In all of that interaction, there can be a shuttling of genetic information from cell to cell. And I think historically, a lot of it falls back in this category of people just assumed it's accidental. This is a virus infection that didn't go to completion and and the occasional accidents happen and the consequence of it is maybe some bacterial genes got moved from cell to cell during this process. And now we have enough evidence that this mechanism is called transduction, that there can be viruses that seem to just do that at a high enough rate that it's unexplainable to couch it in terms of an accident. This seems like something that is happening through selection, increasing rates of bacterial recombination with these, these viral intermediate players. So why is that? I don't have a good answer for why that would be. It could be in this realm of evolutionary biology has often been enamored of the idea that mutations alone are not always enough, that you have to have big, radical recombinant changes driving organisms to better adapt. And there's not superb evidence for that, but this, this kind of example I quickly went through seems to suggest that it could at least occasionally be selected, that you've got a system and a way of bringing more variation in through recombination. And the the phages are the ones that are being selected to do it at a higher rate. The prediction is that that's doing something beneficial for the phage and for their interacting bacteria. It's just hard to know. I I feel like when we see something cool in viruses, which is all of the time, because you go out in nature, you find a new virus, certainly a new bacteriophage, it's trivial to find a new phage. Exactly what its ecology is out there is hard to know. So it's a, literally a very fun playing field at this point that the extreme virus biodiversity on this planet, we can more easily and easily measure it, we can bring it in the lab safely examine it, but it's just, at this point, endless what one could do with the virus biodiversity on this planet from a basic research standpoint, from an applied standpoint, to just keep studying it and see what we find.
1: Do you, when, when viruses infect cells, do you think that they're using the cell's machinery to also... Uh, engender cell-to-cell communication? You know, like when you oh, right. when you have a virus, there's a latency period. Do you think that perhaps the virus is communicating to other viruses or other infected cells? And they're saying, all right, there's, is there a quorum sensing going on, you think? Right. Saying, right. All right. Yeah. It's time to turn on lytic activity. Yeah, there is
2: enough of this evidence now that
1: there's eavesdropping by
2: viruses, by bacteriophages on the quorum sensing, chemical communication happening with their hosts. And maybe they can introduce chatter into that communication so that the bacterial hosts are not as defended by upregulating things that would defend them against phage attack. So the the phage have evolved to kind of uh, get into that communication network and make it ineffective. And that's so cool to me. And when you asked me earlier some of the more interesting findings I've seen, I mean, this just really suggests... An added complexity in some communities of microbes, if you imagine. There's just so many environments where the bacteria and the phages and other microbial players are all there at the same time. said that earlier about microbiome. So what are the lines of communication going between cells of the same species as well as across species in that community? How is it that phages are uh, eavesdropping? How is it that they are circumventing or uh, preventing these lines of communication? From occurring, we got a lot of work to do to examine the complexities of that. But it's just, to me, it's fascinating. You know, it takes you to this higher level for which it's always been hard to do community ecology. I tell people this, and it's not because people don't try, it's because it's complex. It's hard to figure out in the system, how do you explain all the species being present there over a long period of time? And uh, now that we know phages can eavesdrop in this way and break up lines of communication, and you have to insist on examining how does this affect entire communities
1: of microbes, not just the bacteria, the ones that are uh, where their communication is being intercepted. That's amazing. I mean, so I guess just like bacteria form biofilms and they have coordinated effort phages. I don't know if you call it a, a swarm or what you'd call it, but it seems like there's coordinated phage behavior or virus behavior.
2: Yeah, I think you're you're asking the, the real important question here is how coordinated is it? I think that cellular systems have ways that is where I have to be very careful about what's complex as a biology, biological system versus not, because viruses are incredibly complex, even though they sometimes have few genes. But that uh, coordination has been one of the harder things to draw believable analogies to in the virus world, because these are more or less static, able to exist in the environment combinations of nucleic acid and protein. And then when they get inside of cells, the action takes place. And as you said earlier, is that constitute when they're alive or not? But uh, r- regardless, all this stuff is very difficult to figure out. And how coordinated could a system be when you don't think it's got all of the elaborate networks of communication and gene networks that you would assigned to a cellular system and a metabolic system, if you don't have that, can you still have coordinated behavior? That's my point. And uh, some people would like to prove that that is true. I'm not sure if they'll get there. My point is they've hypothesized this, but we see a lot of firm proof that you can get coordination within virus systems.
1: Well, it seems like viruses and bacteria have a very sophisticated language that it's totally different. Or, I mean, we can't understand, like how could a bacteria interpret the viral genome and say, all right, mm-hmm. I'm going to pull out this piece and that piece. And how could a virus interpret, okay, I know how to run a cell. It's like, you know, it's in this environment. How does it know how to run the environment? What machinery <laughs> to use and all that. So,
2: I agree that the feedback mechanisms for this in the eyes of selection are pretty tricky to discover. And what you just mentioned reminds Did me to say. I'm not sure we covered this earlier. So, if a bacterium is already infected with some virus, and that virus is hanging out stably in the bacterial chromosome, this could provide a defense against other virus types entering the cell. So, at what level is that defense deployed? I mean, people have looked at the molecular biology of it, and it's uh, still it's the it's the time the timing of those effects or what's always been mysterious to me. You've got a cell in its lifetime infected by one phage type and it's preventing, how is it preventing the infection of another phage type? Is it merely the thing that's decorating the outside of the cell? If that something about that, that phage being in it already inside of a cell, is it dictating what that cell presents on the exterior as potential binding receptors and eliminating the ones that other phages could exploit? Well, that. You know, that could be believable, but the point is that's not always going to be useful to that bacterium. It depends on the environment that it's in. If it's suddenly in an environment where it needs some of that stuff decorating the cell to take up a sugar that's in that environment, then it's not going to be able to last, and you won't have that relationship perpetuated through time, and you know, we never will have seen it in biology discovery. So I think it's just cool stuff for largely future research. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people are trying to get at it now, but it's not easy stuff to, to measure. Now that we have more single cell kind of tools in microbiology, I'm more optimistic that we can get at these intimate partnerships between viruses and cells at the level of individual cells. That's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to impress on, upon the, uh, you and the audience in this, is that we often measure things in microbiology at the population level because it's convenient and practical. If you get down to the individual cell level, That's where you can really start to see variation from cell to cell within the same population and see variation in how certain cells interact with these uh, potentially free riders in the system, plasmids, uh, prophages, things that are in the genome. But it would be so much more powerful to examine that at the level of individual cells rather than across a population of cells that's a million or
1: 10 billion in size. Are people doing that at the level of the individual cell, or was it their belief system that there wouldn't be any interesting behavior at that level holding back research, or, or is it active?
2: Oh, oh, I think it's active. It's, it's a very active area. I, I believe it was more from the standpoint of individual cell genomics, where people wanted to isolate individual cells, get their genomes sequenced, which is a very tall order, believe me, but it's really what, what we just talked about there is more in the realm of individual level phenotypes, you know, traits at the cellular level, which is pretty tricky stuff to measure. Uh, a lot of it goes hand in hand with new technology. So, um, you know, uh, droplet, kind of li- liquid handling, robotics, and isolation of cells within individual droplets. I don't know everybody who's working on that, but some folks who've been in the field for a while, like me, I'm thinking Paul Rainey. I mean, there's there's people who look at that, and I really love how they're taking the new technology, looking at existing or new questions in the light of this new technology, and yeah, there's a lot of interest at the level of the individual cell, what is happening.
1: When it comes to um, bacteria and bacteriophages, do phages seem to predate bacteria in biofilm form or individual form? Is there any difference in their ability to infect bacteria in those two forms?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, here's, this is tricky because we've done so much work for so many decades on uh, what do you call me- well-mixed liquids in microbiology labs that it's, I think it's safe for me to say it's only relatively recently in the eyes of microbiology that people are doing a lot of biofilm research, and that's a bit unfortunate. Because really, the majority of the way that bacteria grow in this world is on a surface. And on a surface, they can form biofilms. Not all bacteria do this. And biofilms are very compelling. They seem to be these structures that make the bacteria very resilient against environmental perturbations. I mean, certainly antibiotics. You know We use them in trying to cure infections. But recall, antibiotics are naturally produced by microbes. The point is that these very rigid structures for which sometimes phages are interacting with the bacteria and contributing to the stuff that gets secreted from the cell to make these very rigid structures, but more to the point of lytic phages that are predators, they can have a better ability to get into a biofilm and destroy it from within compared to an antibiotic that can't permeate that biofilm. So there's a lot of active... Research on the phage therapy side that if you're going to deploy phages in therapy, you really have to do it with the eye to destroying biofilms. And you could engineer a phage so it has some enzymes uh, structurally attached to it to degrade the biofilm from the outside, or you could uh, find phages that are naturally capable of doing that.
1: So, what do you think is going to be the uh, the near-term future, you know, for your lab at least? Or are there any big big technologies coming that are really going to open the doors to to figuring out a lot more of this this interaction?
2: Yeah, I'd say um, from the phage therapy side, which is a lot of what we're doing right now, the the main thing that we are trying to convince ourselves and others is a limitation historically was this idea of specificity. So if I've got several patients and they all have the same bacterial species infecting them, maybe I have to have a phage that is specific to the genotype of that pathogen. Each patient, and that's just way too inefficient. You don't want to have to go find some genotype of some phage that is matching some genotype of some pathogen. So, my assertion based on the data that I've seen is that we kind of became enamored of that idea based on some very well studied phages in the 1900s. And now that you have an idea in mind to go find a phage with a broader host range that would be useful and killing almost any genotype within a target species of bacteria, I think that they can be found. It's more about our search image for it. So one of the things that I believe is the next wave of the usefulness of phage therapy is that a lot of the attention is going to cocktails. So if I assume I've got to have this mixture of phage genotypes bundled together in one dose that I call a cocktail in order to to cover the genotype space of the host bacteria, I don't know that that's true. I would rather take one phage and use it, knowing that it's covering a large amount of genotype space and attacking the bacteria. So why would I want to do that? Because I'll do that and I'll do that until it fails, and then I would rather go back to my library of similar types of phages and deploy them next. If I bundle them all together and throw them into a cocktail and deploy it at the same time, it can, wouldn't necessarily into this, but it can select for the bacteria. to just withstand attack by all of the phages. And you sort of, you sort of have shown your entire hand, you know, at the very early stage of playing the card game. And it's not to your benefit to do that. So that to me is a very active and cool part of research. How am I going to deploy phages? Is it the knee-jerk assumption to use cocktails as a good idea? Maybe it is. Or maybe it's not. Maybe I need to go with more of a precision of I'm going to find a phage that is able to attack this species in a greater way and eliminated as a pathogen, but I'm going to have a whole collection of such phages at, m- at my disposal in case I need to use
1: them in the future. Has anyone, if you're able to understand how, again, the dynamic of phage bacteria over time, you know, perhaps you deliberately infect a, a population of bacteria with a phage that causes it to adapt in such a way that then when you introduce phage number two, it's especially vulnerable to a, yeah, you know, phage then just knocks it out, you know?
2: Yeah, in a sense. I mean, that's similar to what we've been trying to do. So if we find a phage that's interacting with a bacterial virulence factor or drug-resistance mechanism by binding to it, then we kill the bacteria, but the evolutionary response of the bacteria becomes more predictable and beneficial for the therapy. So, okay, if... If the bacteria have to solve the problem of phage attack and evolve resistance to them if they are mutants, then they're going to do it maybe by compromising those virulence factors and becoming avirulent or compromising those drug resistance mechanisms and flipping from drug resistance to sensitivity. And we've shown that that works in the lab and that it could work in a patient. So that's very, several patients actually. So that's very promising. And I think that that's a good way to go. More to your question is, yeah, we're already doing that. We d- we tried to deploy phages sequentially. So we're going to deploy a phage in the emergency treatment of a human, maybe trying to get the inflammation in the target organ under control. So if the bacteria are destroying tissue, causing inflammation, that's very harmful to the patient. Maybe the first phage we deploy is going to attack the bacterial population from the standpoint of killing it, but also pushing for the bacteria to evolve to be less inflammatory. So now that they're at that stage, now let's deploy another phage that's going after another key trait of those bacteria that once they've given up the inflammation um, you know, initiation, maybe we're now more worried about them in terms of, okay, they're still there and they are still drug resistant. So now let's push on them from the standpoint of another phage that'll kill those bacteria or select for them you know, as remaining ones to be less resistant to a drug that will deploy at the same time as that second phage. So I kind of went through that quickly, and I know it's complicated. The main message is that I like what you said earlier. It is reminiscent of what we're already doing and what I think others are considering, is deploy phages in a sequential way if you have enough confidence that you know enough of the system that this kind of uh, um, phage after phage approach is going to be in the best interest of the patient and the best way to knock down that infection and remove it.
1: You know it would be really cool if you can if we could understand understand all these communications between, you know, our immune system and bacteria and viruses, et cetera. You know, what if you did a cocktail like this? Like you you introduce a phage that, you know, attacks a certain bacteria, and at the same time you introduce something that lets the immune system know, okay, go after this bacteria. And then you also were able to understand that the other bacteria that are you know, currently in the host would love a chance to get a leg up on this one. Yeah. And you know, maybe they can produce their own toxins to target that bacteria. So you, you hit it from three different angles and then there's probably no way that it could, uh, it could survive.
2: Yeah, I love it. I mean, definitely uh, what my colleagues and collaborators and I talk about all the time is the systems approach. How could you take a disease state like this, like a pathogen being in a microbiome, that's essentially what happens when a pathogen invades your body. It's now part of this community, but it's not supposed to be there. So how can you go after it, but also maybe manipulate the other players that are already in the system or manipulate the immune system that's all already there as long as the person is not immunocompromised? So how do you get a handle on all those things at the same time, navigate them the way you want so that you're going to get a better outcome when deploying the therapy? And I mean, you're hitting it on the nail on the head is you have to take a systems approach to it. It's pretty tricky. I think um, naturally it involves a mashup between the laboratory microbiology as well as the mathematical theory or systems approach to kind of explore some parameter space there and give you more confidence that, okay, I think this can work this way. But I, I love it, what you just proposed, because that's definitely in the future of as we know more and more about microbiomes and their characteristic details, understand that better, at the same time, we need to try and push the envelope for how do you use it to your advantage to manipulate that system in the way you want to push some disease pathogen out. And maybe you're using it alongside waking up the immune system in some way, activating the microbiome in some way, deploying a phage at the same time, So the last thing I'll say about that is it's easy for me to hand wave. You can't see my hands waving right now to to talk about that. The real trick is when you're deploying some new therapy option, like we are for phage therapy, we find the most openness to this from physicians and from the FDA when we keep everything else the same and we just put the phage in. So my point is it's hard to convince current day medicine that I'm going to change five things at the same time. There's an inherent distrust in that. So, That's
1: sad. That's very it, sad. you know why I, I propose this? It's because, you know. it, it's because you might be able to do subtle interactions then instead of brute force. Like if you introduce, right. you may not have to introduce tons of phage. You may only need to very gently poke the immune system. You may only need to very, you know, slightly change what the bacteria are doing and to get your effect instead of like one sledgehammer way. Right.
2: Yeah, that's exactly the analogy I was thinking, the, the scalpel versus the sledgehammer. And I I think uh, in the current COVID-19 pandemic world we're living in, I've had more and more discussions with people about how this influences what we do next in other disease systems for our willingness to push boundaries. So what you've got now is people all over the world anxious for a solution that can predate or come before a vaccine, Right. Everybody's hopeful for this. So I, I think the lay public has a tough time grappling with, oh, really? You, you don't want to just try something and see if it works? Well, the problem is individual to individual as a human patient, they might have a different response to the thing that you're trying. So here I'm, I'm explaining a bit about why do you get the pushback? from physicians and the FDA is because not everything works the same in all people, right? And I'm sure you know that and can appreciate it. So on the one hand, we want to keep pushing systems and disease states so that we can find these solutions and maybe do multiple things at the same time, like you and I are talking about. And yet we're always going to have the pushback in terms of, well, now wait a minute, don't change things too radically. Appreciate the fact that it may not work across genders. It may not work across age groups, the same way that it's working in your in your uh, process of developing this and testing it in a handful of people. So it's a complex world. You know, we're dealing with a complex problem right now. My own opinion, and you can come talk to me about it a year or two from now, I think there's actually gonna be a much greater understanding and willingness for people to, to, to see that you, you have to take medical challenges like this and, and push hard, push back on them as much as you can with creativity and willingness to try things within reason. So I'm, I'm hoping that, I'm not saying, you know, drop all the barriers, <laughs> that's definitely not what I'm saying, but I could imagine a year or two from now that there's an on average, just increased willingness and creativity to push the boundaries and try new things. Because we've lived through, ideally, you know, we've lived through this moment that says, hey, you sometimes got to use very out of the box thinking to get a disease problem under control.
1: I guess the bumper sticker version is complex problems require complex solutions. Maybe not just one small molecule drug. You know, they they right. may require multiple therapies. That's
2: correct. I think that that's spot on. So you should create that bumper sticker and maybe a uh, little <laughs> wind up on
1: some bumpers across <laughs> the USA, at least. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, Paul, this has been a great call. What, what's the best way for people to look up your lab and uh, correspond with you if they have questions or they want to? You know, sure things out
2: yeah i'm uh, the only paul turner at yale so if they just uh went to the internet and looked at paul turner yale they'll find my website uh I'm, I'm delighted for people to go visit the website check out the stuff that my lab is doing we have some descriptions about current projects uh listing publications all that good stuff that you'd expect uh, i have lots of free lectures available through ibiology um i love outreach so you'll find filmed, uh, you know, recorded lectures from me, from museum talks. You know, I, I, I guess I challenge your listeners, go out there and, and look for some stuff that I've produced that's really accessible, and they're going to find a lot of it. Okay. So, you so uh, know, well, search away, I would say. Well,
1: yeah. that, that's how I found you, by the way, is some of your biology oh. lectures. So, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. That's, that's great. I didn't realize that, Richard. <laughs> okay. That's good to know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, Paul, thanks for coming. It's been a really, really interesting call. I appreciate it.
2: Oh, well, I appreciate the opportunity. You take care.
0: You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com.